0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Unauthorized Disclosure Podcast. I'm Kevin Gostola, and I'm very pleased to be bringing you this special piece for you to enjoy. Uh, It's an interview with former CIA officer John Kiriakou. Normally, we post our interviews on Sundays, and uh, sometimes we have an additional discussion portion between myself and Rania Kalik. This time, we are posting the interview uh, in the middle of the week, and it is timed to the release of John Kiriakou's book, Doing Time Like a Spy, How the CIA Taught Me to Survive and Thrive in Prison. A little bit of background before we get into this interview, which is about uh, 40 minutes long, a little bit more than 40 minutes long. John was uh, one of the first officials from President George W. Bush's administration to confirm that detainees were being waterboarded and that there was a torture policy. He... Uh, became the target uh, after that, and eventually officials who uh, were coming after him found that he had confirmed the name of an undercover intelligence agent to a reporter, and they were able to get him uh, on that, and they built a case out around uh, that interaction with a reporter. He eventually pled guilty and was sentenced to 30 months in a federal prison where he did time at Loretto in Pennsylvania. And uh, I have a personal attachment to this case. I visited John in prison multiple times. I was also part of discussions uh, that eventually led to the letters from Loretto, which were published at firedoglake.com. And these are letters that are discussed extensively in John's book. And so we talk about his time in prison. We talk about, uh, some of the things that he wasn't able to talk about before he was incarcerated that relate to how he wound up, uh, being prosecuted. And, uh, we discuss, uh, some of the rules that he decided to abide by rules, which he learned while he was in the CIA, uh, which he used to try and, uh, Survive, and uh, I think you'll find that he uh, excelled at being able to thrive in prison. Uh, But we have a um, a very good, uh, serious, and wide-ranging discussion about some very important issues. Uh, I think that there are parts of it that will definitely uh, be percolating around in many of our listeners' heads after all is said and done. And again, uh, this book is called Doing Time Like a Spy, How the CIA Taught Me to Survive and Thrive in Prison. And so uh, here it is, John Kiriaku.
1: Letters from Loretto were far more important to me than Doing Time Like a Spy. I actually wrote them as two separate books well you know what let me start at the beginning so before I went to prison I'm gonna say it was probably a week or ten days before I went to prison I had dinner at Jane Hampshire's house uh, with Jessalyn Radak and Tom Drake um, Dan Cho Choi, Choi, yeah were you there? You might have been there. Yeah,
0: um, yeah. You so you mentioned this in your book, and and, and I was yeah. there, and I recall um, you, know, you have Dan Ellsberg placed at the dinner. I believe he was actually on a, a on the cell phone. phone. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. That that's you know after I after I wrote it and it went to the editor, I I realized he was he was on the cell phone. So Jane said. Uh, That I ought to, once I was comfortable, that I ought to write something to my supporters, an open letter of sorts, just to tell them how I'm doing, tell them that I'm okay, and let them know how things are going. And I filed that in the back of my head. And I didn't do it for quite some time. I waited about 10 weeks before I felt comfortable enough to do it. And to tell you the truth, I didn't intend for it to be a series. I didn't intend for it to be controversial. And I certainly didn't intend to attract any attention to myself on the part of the, um, of the guards of the prison administration. Uh, I frankly was not very clear headed at the time. And so what I wrote in that first letter from Loretto actually reveal, revealed a, a federal crime where two guards not even guards. They were, they were officers in the special investigative service tried to set me up to, to beat or worse, um, another prisoner and vice versa. And I talked about this female guard who was um, verbally abusive to me, which I didn't realize at the time was a violation of BOP regulations. So I wrote it just thinking that the only people who were going to read it were the handful of people who followed my case on Fire Dog Lake. And like I say in the book, uh, Jane sent it to Ariana. Once Jane published it on Fire Dog Lake, she sent it to Ariana Huffington, who put it on the Huffington Post. And then it just went viral. And um, there was a lot of heat on me uh, in, the, in the days after it came out. Uh, guards, were, a couple guards pulled me aside to ask if I was talking about them or, or who was I talking about. And at first, I didn't even know what they were talking about. Like, what do you mean my Internet article? You know, or what do you mean the Huffington Post? I don't know what you're talking about. And then I realized that it had it had gone viral, and so really quickly, I wrote a second one, a second letter from Loretto that I ended up destroying because I didn't want to push the envelope and get myself sent to solitary confinement um and uh I was so taken aback by the response, not just by the public but by the prison administration, uh coupled with some information that my cousin passed me that he overheard two guards talking. And one of them said that I had not been to solitary or I had not been sent to solitary because I hadn't used any of their names. Well, that was such valuable intelligence for me. I realized that I could write anything I wanted uh, in these Letters from Loretto and they couldn't do anything to me so long as I didn't mention their names. And so I decided to make it a series. So I intended in the beginning to have a Letters from Loretto book that would incorporate you know serious scholarly information on prison reform and sentencing reform and you know one of those one of those serious non-fiction books and then i had a visitor one time a friend of mine who's a, a professor i used to work with i was in the visiting room with this professor friend of mine and there was a um well he was a mafia don he was the head of the gambino crime family uh on the other side of the room and i i pointed him out to the professor and i said i said you see that guy right there he's the boss of the gambino crime family and he was fascinated and um, i was telling him that the first time i saw him in the visiting room he was meeting with two old men they looked to be in their 70s and uh and they just kind of sat there and, and were staring at each other and the boss says did you talk to the guy? And uh, one of the old men said, yeah, I talked to the guy. He said, we're not going to have a problem. And then there's five minutes of silence. He says to the second guy, did you take care of the thing? Yeah, I took care of the thing. Another five minutes of silence. Did you see uh, Paolo? Paolo sends his regards. And I was with my wife at the time and she's like, what, what are we witnessing here? And I said, I think this is a mafia sit down. And he thought that was, that was funny. And he said, oh, you should write this up. Well, the mafia has a very long arm. I don't want to make them mad. They were good to me. So um, I didn't put that in the book. But that's what kind of spurred me on to, to do the book. I wanted to make a separate book that was, that was funny and engaging. And then I wanted to do a book that was serious. In the end, I put them both together and came up with doing Time Like a Spy. For example, uh,
0: the book has a number of rules, and you describe them. I think it would be good to highlight a, a few of them. So, uh, and these are ones that I guess stuck out to me as I was reading the book. I and mean, other people may have their favorites. These are ones that stuck out to me. So, uh, you had everybody is working for somebody.
1: Yes. Yes. That was actually a very serious uh, rule when I was at the CIA. You, you can't trust anybody. You have to assume that everybody is either working well, in, in the intelligence world, that that everybody's working for a, a, another intelligence service, whether friendly or hostile, or they're working in someone else's interests. And so I adapted that to, to prison as well, uh, because... Either people are, are working for their gang or their gang leader, or they're working for the cops, and so it was a constant reminder to be wary of others and of their motivations.
0: Yeah, because ultimately, everybody in prison wants to be able to get out of there alive.
1: That's right, and you know, one of the thing one of the things that's easy to do is to underestimate other people. You know, just because maybe they're lifelong drug addicts, or their IQs aren't very high, you can't assume that they're stupid. And you can't assume that they don't know what they're doing. Because a lot of these guys have have come of age in prison. A lot of these guys have spent the majority of their of their lives in prison. And they know a lot more about prison than I do. So it's, it's easy to underestimate people. And I have to I had to constantly remind myself to not underestimate people.
0: So another rule that stuck out to me was admit nothing, deny everything, make
1: counter accusations. You know, that was – that rule was something of a joke at the CIA, but it became a serious rule for me in prison. And it was the rule that I had the most fun with because that's the rule that I used with the cops all the time. I was forever being called down into the special investigative service, the SIS office. Um, it's, uh, It's part of the lieutenant's office. They're the cops who um, essentially are recruiting um, other prisoners to rat out other prisoners. And so these guys meant me harm from the day I walked into the prison. They were generally friendly enough, but they were the enemy. And uh, and it was very clear to me that they were the enemy. So they, they would call me down there because some rat had said that I had said something. And... Um, kind of tired of being harassed and so I decided to use that rule admit nothing deny everything make counter accusations I was called for example down to the SIS office once and um, one of them said uh, so we understand there was a fight in your housing unit last night want to tell us about it and I said there was a fight in my housing unit and I didn't even notice it are you kidding me yeah, very uh very funny smart guy. So I said, I don't know what you're talking about. In fact, I think you're making this up. I think you're making this up so you can see what my response is going to be. And I don't know what you were talking about. Well, then they started to press me. Finally I said, "You know what? I think you started the fight. You started the fight to see what was going to happen." Finally they just said, "Get out of here and go back to your your unit." And um you know, I got a chuckle as I was as I was walking out, and they were so easily rattled that I thought, well, th- this is fun. There's no fallout for me, so I'm going to use this all the time. And I did. So here they thought they were harassing me. Actually, I was harassing them, and I was having a better time doing it.
0: <laughs> and then uh, if stability is not to your
1: benefit, chaos is your friend? Oh, yeah. I say in the book with that rule that it's just plain fun to stir the pot sometimes. It's it's probably not the smartest thing or the safest thing to do. But there are occasions when the status quo is not to your benefit. And so you've got to and, and forgive me if this sounds so cynical, but you've got to manipulate people and you've got to, to stir that pot to get what you want. You know, I I tell this story in the in the early chapters of the book. And it really makes me look like a bad guy. And and friends and family members alike who have read the draft have said, woo, you should have left this out. But I, I insisted on putting it in. There was a guy who was a a, a con man. He was a, quite an accomplished con man. And um, he had dated an A-list Hollywood star. Um, so he had been in People Magazine and Variety and, and Us Magazine. And he was just very um, – He was very uh, arrogant and conceited and in love with himself, but he was a a pain, not just because he never shut his flapping gums for five seconds, uh, but also because he was constantly trying to rip people off. He was borrowing from Peter to pay Paul. He was borrowing from loan sharks. He He was trying to rip off other prisoners by having their families transfer money into his account so he could write their appeals, even though he wasn't an attorney. Um, And he would cry all the time. He would cry when he was happy. He would cry when he was lonely. And I I just couldn't stand the guy anymore. So here's what I did. There's a a form that that the administration gives you the day before you leave prison. It's called a merry-go-round. And the idea is that you have to spend your last day in prison – going from office to office to office, getting a signature from each office on this merry-go-round. You don't really need the signatures for anything. It's just to keep you out of trouble on that last day. So one of my cellmates was um, was going home, and I said to him, "Hey, Jesus, can I borrow your uh, merry-go-round? Oh, sure, he says. So I go up to the to the library. I make a photocopy of it. I white out his name and prisoner number, and then I type in this idiot's, I'm going to call him, I I think I called him Wallace in the book. I typed in Wallace's name and prisoner number and then made another photocopy of that so that it was clean. I waited until five o'clock on a Friday and I put the new merry-go-round on Wallace's bed along with um, a duffel bag that a friend of mine had stolen from the laundry that they give to indigent prisoners to, to take their possessions home. So finally around... Six o'clock, Wallace strolls into the cell. Hey, guys. We said, hey, Wallace. He walks over to the to the bed and he gasps. And I said, what happened? And he holds up the merry-go-round and he says, I'm going home. And I said, you're going home? Well, how'd that happen? And very confidently, he says, I won my appeal. I said, my goodness, Wallace, nobody ever wins their appeal. That's amazing. Well, one of my other cellmates said, hey, Wallace, we have to have a dinner for you. We'll, we'll have a dinner... Uh, this weekend, going away party for you. Because we said on the merry-go-round that he was going home on Monday morning. Well, the next day, he gave away all of his possessions. And on Sunday, we had a big bash for him. A dinner and, and guys laughing and talking and sitting around. It was a lot of fun. Monday morning, we all walk him down to the receiving and discharge office. And the, the CEO in r and was relatively friendly. So he is the one who told me the rest of this story. So when Wallace gets into R&D, the cop says, "Uh, who are you? He says, I'm Wallace. And he hands the cop his uh, merry-go-round. What are you doing here? The cop says, and Wallace says, I'm going home. Well, the cop looks at the merry-go-round and tells Wallace, turn around, you're under arrest. Wallace says, for what? He says, for attempted escape. This is a forgery. So he cuffs him, He takes him to solitary. Wallace is crying the whole way down there. They end up putting him in solitary for, I I forget if it was three months or six months. And then they transferred him to another prison. There was no fallout for him. He was not charged with escape because they they couldn't prove that he had actually forged the merry-go-round. And he was adamant that he hadn't. So there was no permanent damage to him. But I got him out of our hair and transferred to another prison. So, in that case, calm was not to my benefit, so chaos was my friend
0: <laughs> and uh, just so people you know don't think that you didn't care about anyone that was in the prison there were people who uh, you met along your uh, along the way uh, that you you did uh, come to feel uh, some level of compassion for or you empathized with what they were going through uh can you talk about mark um, Lanzolotti and his story i know i know so so just quick quickly preface this i i visited you in prison with jane a couple times um and then brian sonnenstein uh visited with me on another occasion i know that you talked about mark's story this is something that uh you described so uh yeah talk about mark
1: yeah, in fact I talked to Mark's mother um earlier today. Uh Mark became my best friend in prison. Uh, this this was a story his his case and his story was to me the clearest indication of of what's wrong with the criminal justice system. So Mark is from Philadelphia. He's in his um mid 40s, late 40s and um College graduate, small business owner. Um, his stepfather approached him one day and um, and told him that he had a methamphetamine manufacturing operation going. He wanted Mark to come in and help him cook meth. Mark had never done that before, but his stepfather uh, taught him. And um, so Mark helped him make meth for about six months. Uh, this was in the uh, middle 1990s. Well, this was not the life for him. And so six months in, he decided he wanted out and he told his stepfather, I don't like this. It's not for me. I'm out. There were nine people involved in this meth operation. Mark was the only one who voluntarily left the conspiracy. So fast forward about uh, three years and the DEA, ATF and the FBI raid the house where this meth is being manufactured. Mark's been out of it for two or three years at this point. Uh, and they arrest the other eight guys. They did not arrest Mark. In fact, Mark remained out on the street for another year until his co-conspirators ratted him out. And so a year later, he was arrested. And he was charged with, um, with two counts of uh, manufacturing methamphetamine with the intent to distribute So his stepfather, for whatever reason, was not arrested. He was the only one who was not arrested. And he hired an attorney for Mark. But he told Mark that the attorney doesn't represent rats and Mark's going to have to plead not guilty. If he wants to take a plea, then he's going to have to pay for an attorney himself. Well, he he didn't have an attorney. He didn't have money for an attorney. So uh, Mark just assumed that everybody else was, was going to trial. And um, as it turned out, the government had offered all of the other co-conspirators five and a half years in exchange for testifying against Mark because Mark refused to take the plea. What Mark did not know was that the government had offered him a 10-year non-cooperation plea deal. So he wouldn't have to testify. Just take a guilty plea and do 10 years. But his attorney never told him that the government had made that that offer. And so he went to trial. Of course, he was found guilty because he was guilty. Well, with mandatory minimum sentencing laws, um, and then with enhancements for things like failure to take responsibility, he ended up getting and this was for a first time nonviolent drug offense, he ended up getting triple life without parole. He repeatedly tried to commit suicide When he was sent to the US penitentiary in Springfield, Missouri, Um, he appealed and on appeal, his sentence was cut to 30 years, but 30 years, again, for a first time nonviolent drug offense, and he was the only one to voluntarily leave the conspiracy. So he had done about 14 years when I um, got to Loretto and he had worked his way down from a maximum security penitentiary to a medium security prison to a low security prison. He and I hit it off immediately. I mean, this is a a good man, a good human being. And, um, and I valued his friendship. I continue to value his friendship. So about a, a year, maybe 14 months into my sentence, I read an article that the Justice Department was going to start this clemency project. It's called Clemency Project 2014. And I, I saw it in the New York Times and I went down to Mark Sell and I said, hey, man, you qualify for this, right? You have to have no violence, no gun involved in your case, no uh, ties to organized crime or to organized gang activity, um, and if you were arrested today, you would likely get a less severe sentence. I said, this is perfect for you. And if they accept your case, they assign you a pro bono attorney. So he and I sat over the course of a couple of days and we wrote an appeal and we sent the appeal into the Justice Department. And sure enough, um, the Justice Department accepted his appeal and they assigned his case to an A-list Washington law firm called Latham and Watkins. Well, by then, I was home, but I was in close touch with his attorneys, and I, I told them that I would help in any way I could. I ended up uh, sending in an affidavit. Well, Mark even got his prosecutor to write him a letter of support, and the prosecutor said that he had actually lost sleep over the years because of Mark's harsh sentence. And so he asked the uh, the Justice Department to uh, let Mark go. Finally, last August, I got a, a call from Mark's mom saying that the president had commuted his sentence, that the final sentence would be an even 20 years. And with good behavior time, because Mark had never had a disciplinary problem in all the years he was in prison, he's going to be released on um, September the 15th. So, it was a success story in the end, but it 's indicative of the of the draconian sentences that we have in this country
0: yeah it 's an amazing story, and you know another thing that I remember unfolding uh, that that you talked about that i couldn 't talk about because there was actually some level of of, of danger potentially uh, and you weren 't really sure how you're going to handle it I, i'm wondering if you know. There's a lot of details in the book, you don't need to get into all of them. But if you can talk about Kenneth Schaefer and what was going on with um this story in, in prison that was unfolding with this character, um I, I think it's it's an incredible um that you had to deal with this person, it's rather
1: incredible. He, Kenneth Schaefer was a uh, was a Harvard educated Philadelphia attorney who was a um who was a pedophile, a, a pederast. And, um, he had, uh, taken in, he was living in Moscow, uh, working uh, at a law firm there. And, uh, he had this love of the ballet. So he had been donating money to the Bolshoi ballet school for children. And he had taken this, this keen interest in one 12 year old boy, uh, and offered to pay for his education. Um, if the boy would move into his apartment, well, the parents were leery of it, but um, they finally agreed because, you know, the guy's a prominent American attorney working for some Russian oligarch. He has plenty of money. He's going to pay for everything. Within days of this little boy moving into his um, his apartment, Schaefer began raping him, and um, and the sex the sexual assault lasted for something like five years. So the way the way the feds finally got him, um, he brought the boy to the United States to um, study at the Philadelphia uh, Ballet. And they had a falling out. So finally, the kid filed a civil suit against him. Well, when the clerk of the court read the civil suit, she immediately called the FBI and reported this crime. And, um, and Schaefer was arrested. He was tried and convicted of two counts of violating the Mann Act, which is taking somebody across a border for the purpose of, um, of sex, illegal sex. Uh, he was convicted and uh, sentenced to 15 years in prison. The guy was paranoid. He was violent. He was arrogant and aggressive and dangerous, which— was funny because he was a little tiny guy. He was probably 5'5 or 5'6, maybe 130 or 140 pounds, but he was insane enough to at least threaten to use violence. The reason why I had a conflict with him was because he wanted to move into my room and he lied to me about his crime. When I became aware of exactly what his crime was, I told him I didn't want any pedophiles in my room and I didn't ever want to speak to him again. I said, your crime sickens me and I don't ever want to have contact with you. Well, it was like flipping a switch. Uh, this is this is the longest chapter in my book and you're right, I go into incredible detail. Detail that's going to make your hair stand up when you read it. Um, in the end, in the end, he was caught with two shanks in his room. Now, some people said that he had made these shanks in order to either stab me or to plant in my room to have me sent to solitary and and have a a weapons charge added to my case. Um, The cops said that they thought one of my friends planted the shanks in his room because they were under the bed and not in the locker And again, I I use that technique of admit nothing, deny everything and make counteraccusations. I I frankly had nothing to say to the cops. And uh, I told them that their their theory was ridiculous. It was impossible. And I wasn't even going to dignify it with a response. So what ended up happening was one of my cellmates was transferred to a prison in Ohio because of this. Schaefer was transferred to a prison in New Jersey. And I never saw either one of them again. But you know, this is this is another ongoing theme in especially low security prisons across America. That's where all the pedophiles are sent. They can't go to a camp because they're not high security the camps are not high enough security for pedophiles, but they can't go to a maximum or a medium prison because they'll be killed there. And so easily a third of all federal prisoners at the at the low security level are pedophiles. And these are guys for whom there is no treatment. There's no cure. They um, they huddle together. They hang out together constantly outside in the yard, in the TV room, in their, in their cells, wherever. They reinforce each other. There's no therapy or anything. And then finally they're released. They're released to go back into society and to commit their crimes again. And they do. There was a guy I worked with in the chapel, and I I also mentioned him in the book. Uh, He was in on a child molestation charge, which is a mandatory minimum of five years. So he got out, immediately molested another child, and then got 12 years, which is when I met him. So he was working in the chapel at the very end of his 12-year sentence. He gets released again, and then six months later, there he is in prison again. And I said, his name was Cook. I said, Cook, what happened to you? And he said, well, he was from Kentucky. He says, I have a problem and I got myself into a little trouble again. I said, how much time did they give you? And this guy's like 65 years old. He said they gave him 60 years. And I said, no offense intended personally, but society is better with you not in it. Our children need to be protected.
0: And, and when you talk about that, because it did come up a lot, it, it was um, something you talked about very vividly in your letters from Loretto. Uh, I mean, you feel uh, that the prison system is enabling these people. I know there were examples where you thought corrections of people could have stepped in and changed the culture or addressed it, but this was allowed to happen on their watch.
1: Yeah, I, I really believe that, you know, we had a we had a policy in the chapel where I worked that you couldn't talk about your case. No matter what you did, you couldn't talk about your case. The chapel is a place for for prayer and reflection and meditation and study. And instead, the chapel, like the library, was a safe haven for pedophiles. And not only would they talk about their cases, they would regale each other with their sexual conquests of children, and the cops, and and the chaplain is also a cop. You know, sure he's a minister, but he's a cop first. They would allow them to to do this uh, several times. I would get up out of my chair and walk out into the hall and say, "Hey, stop talking about your case." You know, there there was one guy in particular. I, I don't mean to to pepper you with anecdotes, but. This was a guy, he was six, six feet, eight inches. We called him Chomo the Giant. Chomo is prison slang for child molester. So we called him Chomo the Giant. He'd been a fireman in Hagerstown, Maryland. And his wife caught him having sex with their 15 year old daughter and not just having sex with her, but he was videotaping it. And then he was selling the DVDs on the internet to other pedophiles. And when I yelled at him, because he was the one who would more than anyone else, talk about his case so i went out there and i yelled at him and he was indignant and he said well she came on to me and she said she liked it and it felt good and who are you to judge me i was so sickened by it i just walked back into the office and sat down again like you can't win about it like that
0: it's just so disgusting and awesome. uh so uh, there are a couple questions I have for you uh before I wrap. Uh and I, I guess one one of them is, you know, you've you've been out of prison for some time now and I know that when you were incarcerated there were some things about how uh you came to uh be charged with offenses, uh espionage act related that uh, maybe you you weren't able to be open about how uh, events unfolded that led up to you being someone who was a target of government prosecution. Um, But you do spend some time in the book outlining uh, what was going on, and I just wondered uh, if uh, you could take uh, a couple minutes and just address how... uh, there was, some, there was a thought that you were actually providing photos uh, uh, or providing information that could be useful to
1: Guantanamo cases. Isn't that correct? Right, right. That's, that's what the original accusation was, that I had provided photos of something like a dozen undercover CIA officers, which was a ridiculous accusation. I had never done anything of the sort. But there was another former CIA officer who did do it, um, he was a disgruntled, um, fired former CIA officer in Bethesda, Maryland. And um, our investigators, my, my uh, attorney's investigators, uh, not only found his identity, but found the notes that the reporter took when this guy provided the reporter with the photos. So we provided all that to the, uh, to the FBI and to the prosecutors, and they didn't care one whit. And that's what led me to the conclusion, and I'm adamant that this is correct, that the reason they didn't go after him is because he didn't blow the whistle on the CIA's torture program. That my case was never about a leak. My case was about torture. If my case had been about a leak, this other guy would have been arrested, and he would have been convicted, and he would be in jail for decades for what he did. But they didn't care about the identities. They only cared about silencing me.
0: And so, uh, I guess I, I have two more here. So, is there anything uh, that you want to know about uh, what uh, was going on, like, while you were in prison? Maybe there were things happening on the inside you still have questions about that? Uh, is there anything that you feel like you need to pursue after your incarceration, like things that were happening to, to, happening to you and Loretto that you think are suspicious that you, you want to get to the bottom of?
1: I did. Um, I don't anymore because what I ended up doing was filing a Freedom of Information Act request on myself. Um, as part of my plea, I had to promise never to file a Freedom of Information Act request on myself. Well, I chose to interpret that as meaning – that I can't file a Freedom of Information Act request related to my case. So I filed it with the Bureau of Prisons and they sent me about 200, I think it was 255 pages, most of which was nonsense. It was my medical records, my visitor's list. It was just dumb stuff that I already had. But there were eight pages in there that were very clearly marked FOIA exempt, do not release to inmate. And I don't know if the... Bureau of Prisons FOIA person was either so stupid that they just included this in the package or if they felt sorry for me and they were including it for my information. But it was, it was an account of the deliberation within the BOP um, over denying me um, placement in a, in a minimum security camp. Uh, and it was because I had access to the media. It was funny. There was one paper that had these huge block letters on it, and it said, caution, inmate has access to the media. Uh, and uh, and there were also papers about how um, I was so highly trained at the CIA that I was an escape risk, which was so ludicrous and so outrageous. I mean, I'm married with five kids where in the world am I going to run? And knowing I'm going to spend under two years in a low security prison, like what a stupid thing to assume that I'm going to try to escape just because I'm trained to escape. Um, so it, it was interesting to me. It wasn't really important, um, in the overall context of my prison time, but it was interesting enough to include in the book. I thought.
0: Yeah. And I know that you highlighted it in one of your letters. Uh, yes. And, uh, so I guess lastly and this is kind of a creative question on my part but I just think the answer could be interesting. So um uh, you know you, you frame the book as uh you know you go to prison the CIA has taught you some skills for survival. Uh I post life in prison are there lessons you take away from being incarcerated?
1: Um yeah, sure. You know, Kevin, I never gave two seconds of thought to the justice system. I I never had reason to. I just figured, you know, the cops would only arrest somebody if if they had committed a crime, if they ought to be arrested. I've come to realize that's just simply not true. Our system is uh, racist. Our system is anti-poor. Our system does absolutely nothing to rehabilitate anyone in any way. Uh, I think it's a waste of the taxpayers' money. And um, when, you know, when we have 5% of the world's population in the United States and 25% of the world's prison population, there's a problem. When we rely on for-profit entities to run private prisons, uh, there's a problem. Because the only way for those prisons to make money is to not spend money on things like food and medical care. And certainly rehabilitation. So I, I've come to realize that, you know, in many in many ways, we're not the good guys out there. The United States, we're the bad guys, and uh, we have very serious problems that need to be addressed. While at the same time, nobody in the White House or on Capitol Hill has the guts to even try to tackle the problem.
0: All right. Well, the the book is "Doing Time Like a Spy: How the CIA Taught Me to Survive and Thrive in Prison." And uh, this is going to be available on Amazon, or is there any particular place you think people should go to buy this book?
1: Amazon's the easiest, and it's the cheapest. It's also going to be at Barnes & Noble and independent booksellers, and then there are some autographed copies uh, directly from the publisher, which is Rare Bird Books. All right. Excellent. All
0: right, John, thanks for talking. Thank you, Kevin. That does it for the interview with John Kiriaku. and there will be more content on Sunday uh, my co-host Rania Kalik will be with me uh, we will have a discussion episode for you uh, that will be posted and and then we'll be taking a break for a few weeks but uh, definitely look forward to that new episode coming on Sunday until then all the best to you